I think through silver is an example, just like all our records of us making the music that we needed to make to save us because we fully believe in the power of music to save us. I mean, that's, that's been our, why we're addicted to music and why we love music so much and why we've been following this musical path our whole life is music's the only thing that is really just going to give us the grace to get through the day and get through the moment. And so we were just trying to create the music that was going to save us that didn't exist.
When uh, Through Silver and Blood came out, I was already a huge Neurosis fan and had already been impacted pretty heavily by them. I had first gotten into them from the Easter Chemistry comp that had a couple of songs from Pain of Mind on it. And then shortly after, heard uh, their EP, um, the Aberration EP, as well as eventually getting Word is Law. So when, when Souls at Zero came out, it was kind of a big shock. But af- after that, you know, it wasn't that big of a shock to hear through Silver and Blood. Strangely enough, though, that album took a while to uh, to kick in. The first time, you know, we heard it, Damon was actually on tour, and we picked up a copy and we're jamming out. We were actually supposed to go record with uh, Noah Landis. He was going to produce the first Damon album, and I guess Neurosis got Ozfest, so he wasn't able to do it was cool and uh, hooked us up with Billy Anderson, which we were, you know, equally stoked on. So we went out there, recorded that, came back home, and I decided to give the album another try. I knew with Souls at Zero, it took me like three or four listens to that before I got into it. And then once I did, it really hit. So I knew it had to be the same with Through Silver and Blood. And honestly, it was, I just took a bath one day and put it on and just chilled in the bathtub for a long time through that whole album. And uh, it really, that's when it really hit me, when I just had some time to spend alone with it and and get in its, you know, kind of groove. Um, The way it just kicks in, and just that repetition is just so so brooding and evil sounding you know when you even now when i hear it it kind of gives me goosebumps it takes me back to the, the first time where that album really clicked so yeah i mean it's to me that album was always the album that that metal people seem to get got into them whenever i meet somebody from the, the metal world and they talk about neurosis it's always the album that they say is their favorite it's always the album they say that, that changed their life so i know that album was uh life-changing for many people like the way souls at zero was for me i mean that album completely changed the way i looked at things it was just completely changed how i viewed how music should be played and the feeling that you can put into it and uh i know the metal world was was hit the same way with through silver and blood and was never really i mean for the better you saw a lot more bands getting influenced by them you saw a lot a lot of the the attitude in certain parts of metal change. And that was cool. I think it was great. And to me, I think that's really one of the biggest legacies of that album. You just heard Through Silver and Blood from Neurosis's Through Silver and Blood from 1996. This is the Requiem Metal Podcast. Neurosis Through Silver and Blood. I'm Mark. And I'm Jason. And thank you for uh, the testimonial there. Uh, we were going to hear quite a few of those throughout the episode. So. True testimonial. Yeah, yeah. Through testimonial and blood, <laughs> and then of course we uh, we also heard from Neurosis there talking a little bit about this record and what it kind of meant to them a bit. Obviously, if you're listening to part two, we hope you heard part one where we set up a lot of the context for the bands and history of music that kind of goes to the emotional weight weighty places that a record like kind of through silver um, kind of goes to. So. I guess my first question before we kind of, you know, sort of dive in there. Um, well, I guess let's talk about the title track for a moment because I often, you know, we we kind of come back around after like 10 minutes and be like, oh, yeah, the song you heard 10 minutes ago. Here's, yeah, you know, that's, I mean, it's a 12-minute song to open things up. Uh, it does not feel like a 12-minute song. Why is that? Because it immediately, that, the the riff. Yeah. It's the whole thing is just building upon that one riff. Yep. And uh, the fucking bass slides that Dave Ed's doing and 
you know the the three the three different vocals happening and i don't know it just sets like it just puts me in, and then the, the fucking drumming this drumming jason Roder's kind of a fucking machine yeah um i know he's respected but he's not really talked about as referentially as I, I think he probably should be. Yeah, he's not talked about in circles the way like uh, you know Danny Carey or Brand Daler or some of yeah. those kind of guys are. You and know? he's not. He doesn't. He's not flashy. That's he part of yeah, it. He's yeah, he's not flashy. But as someone who who is a, a weekend warrior drummer, mm-hmm. um, I tried to play along with this album a little bit. Yeah, it's fucking difficult. It's not as simple as it sounds. Um, is he playing with time signatures or is he just kind of off? From what a normal expectation straight, would be. They're not straight beats. Yeah. Um, and like what he's accenting is not how I would keep time. He's keeping time in a different way than I would. I normally keep time with symbols. Yeah. And he's doing more with toms. And then also, I mean, he's, his level of musicianship is, you know, sure. leaps and bounds beyond where I am. But the, I can play a straight beat. I can play ACDC. It's, that's difficult too. But mm-hmm. it's as soon as you figure out the tempo... You can kind of get the swing, you get a feel of it, um, and this—the closest thing to this would be like like Eeyore Cavalera yeah. drumming. Yeah, no, I I said that the, the, for lack of a better word, the tribal yeah kind of drumming. Thing. I actually wrote. I said the tribal kind of ending um, is a lot like Cleanse, that which yeah. ends you know enemy. But I said it, it's almost predictive of what Sepultura did, like on Kiawas and like parts of Roots, mm-hmm. kind of a return to sort of primal nature a bit. Yeah, and you know later on um uh you know aaron turner will kind of talk a little bit about um kind of how he he hears like some kind of weird influence in like this record and maybe like a record like roots in a weird way i think they're they're trying to they're i mean they're trying kind to of get the same thing yeah, yeah i think they're kind of both moving towards that sort of thing yeah. with with some of like getting into your mythology and history and, and some of that you know um and roots is just more literal yeah yeah exactly but but yeah it's interesting like you know focusing on the drumming that sort of tribal thing i said the the, the oscillations create like kind of a weird circular kind mm-hmm. of feel it's almost like you, you can't know, help but like rock in your chair when you're yeah, listening to the song. it's it's got this oscillation to it you know and i was I, walking the dog a lot to this album. oh really yeah, yeah. And so as soon as I'm, I'm closing my gate is when this is like the drum starts to kick. Okay. Yeah. Cause you get that <laughs> ominous kind of for, you know, foreboding kind of beginning. It's like a harrowing journey that you're on. And yeah. I mean, that's, that's a metaphor for the whole fucking record really. And then you get that, that nasty doom riff, you know, dun, dun. and yeah, it's, it's got just... that like chug, chugga, chugga riff too. Yeah. You know, it's, it's very cool, which again, not, not to harp on it again, when we, you know, Aaron Turner, I think that's like a riff that informs like a lot of early ISIS, that sort of chugga chugga yeah, kind of oh, style, absolutely. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I just think there's like this, there's something about it and you hear it in this song and it's just in general with neurosis, like this innate ability that they have for these lingering meandering riffs that are simultaneously simple, but like also like unsettling. For a better yeah. lack of you know, better, I mean, better lack a, of term. If you had to, you, I'm sure you could learn that riff in five minutes. Yeah, but do you have the discipline to play it to the point where it becomes catharsis? And with with this type of uh, physical intensity, yeah. and then with you know the the layered you know vocal, like when Scott's vocals come in, mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, this is this is it, man. Well, and again, that circular quality. It's like every time they circle back to like 
there, there's this repetitious sort of you know cycle, I guess. It, it that's where it takes on the way Steve described it, this shamanistic yeah. kind of ritualistic kind of music. Yeah, yeah. Because of the circular quality of it, the repetitious sort of thing, because of the oscillating rhythms, you know, it's almost like whether it's subconscious or conscious or intellectual or organic or it, they, they definitely have, it's almost like the way, you know, Mike talked about it on the Allman brothers show that we did, you know, a couple of years ago, or that, you know, you think of in jazz circles that even if you're doing improv based music, and I don't think this is improv based music, but even before you kind of perform a song, there's like an intellectual idea of a theme that you want to sort of like build around and mm-hmm. the musicians kind of circle back to that theme at different times. Neurosis isn't doing like solos the way like Elman Brothers or like Miles Davis or Colt, you know, or yeah. whatever are doing. But in a sense, there's that same philosophy of this kind of circular oscillating repeat mm-hmm. of theme, repeat of theme. And it gives it, you know, we talked about it in part one, the, the, the sort of idea of, you know, the whirling dervishes were Sufi Muslims who believed that by dancing in this sort of repetitious circle sometimes, and I think it's counterclockwise, um, you know, and it would often be for like 20 or 30 straight minutes, you know, you kind of think, how are they not getting dizzy and, and vomitous and stuff like that? But what they're, the whole idea was of the Sufis was to align themselves with the cosmic rhythms of the universe. So they're, 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 they're thinking on an intellectual scale about the way the earth is sort of rotating the way it's, it's moving around the planets and the sun and also the atoms in our body and the electrons and and stuff are moving in sort of a circular fashion. So in a sense, they're sort of like through this oscillation connecting to like the natural order of things. And that when we're stationary, we're almost unnatural in a sort of sense. We're like fighting against the nature of the circular rhythms of the universe. And, yeah, I think as just human beings in general, like movement is our natural state. Yeah, it's it's our state where we're at the most ideal. Yeah. I think. And in the physicality, like you talk about with the, the the performance of this, and we we mentioned it in part one about hey, watch that video of them doing Locust Star and Ozfest and stuff. You know, the physicality and the movement. This is not incidental music. This is like mm-hmm. you know, they won't really talk to the crowd. They're very serious when I've they come seen, yeah, out I've there. I've seen like five times they've never said, "Yeah, hey, we're neurosis from yeah, what the fuck's Oakland. up, Cleveland? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not. This the, one's Locust Star. Hold on to your hats. Yeah, but they're also, you know, it's in the same way that like, you know, when Miles would come out, he would sometimes turn his back to the audience and just do his thing. Yeah. He wasn't, you're like, you're there for him. The like, cry. he's not there to entertain you. You're there because you want to be in the presence of, like, the music that's being created. You want created. experience. Yeah, the crowd's a necessary evil. Yeah. Like, left at his own... Well, I don't know about, about Miles Davis. I'm sure he had a a certain, like... He dug the attention. Yeah, he was... He was he was a personality. He was, he was doing he was, an attitude on purpose. Yeah. You know? yeah. But, like, some, some bands honestly don't... Like, the, it seems like if they could get by through life without having to deal with this whole mechanism of having people to watch them. Like they just want to perform the music. But I think this, uh, the, the title track, it, it really like intensifies that idea of the physicality. Cause even that riff, like when you, like you, you can't really even play that without rocking. Yeah. And then as it gets more intense, the, it gets even more 
the you know the rocking becomes even more sure kind of thing and yeah um yeah even just yeah listen to this having a couple of drinks or smoking a little legal marijuana in michigan um i like it it just kind of takes me over yeah the whole record is kind of that way i'd be like doing shit around the house listening to it and with a notepad at my side <laughs> just like and that's a smarter way of me to move it. yeah because i i struggled with like when to start writing about this record i've been you know processing it for a few weeks and listening to it when i'm driving listening to it when i'm home listening to it when i was grading and i just i finally the other night just kind of was like okay it's time and I went to a coffee shop, which luckily, you know, I, I was able, you know, we can go inside now and had my headphones and, you know, got my caffeine. So I got my own version of my own kind of drugs <laughs> or whatever. And I, I told Mark the last couple of weeks, I feel like I've been punishing my body the way that neurosis sort of punished their body in the, the making of this. Like I've been staying up too late, like writing notes, doing research, you know, drinking way too much coffee, like at night and like kind of getting like fucked up dream sleep. Yeah. It's like almost... I don't know, it's like method method podcasting or something like, you know. I think the my my key for really penetrating this on a level where I thought I really understood it was or in a greater greater way than I did before was listening to it in different contexts. Yeah. Listening to it completely sober, listening to it really drunk. Mm-hmm. Um listening to it driving, walking, um doing something, not doing something. Mm-hmm. Um and it Every I get something out of it, no matter what. Yeah. Um, I think, but I I think the the key is like when you're engaged with it is we truly get the full experience. Well, I think too the thing that you got to sort of appreciate, and I I I actually have more thoughts on the title track. I don't want to forget about that, but <laughs> but it's you know I wrote some just thoughts down. I said uh, you know it's an undistilled pipeline back to the psyche of people like Steve and Scott and and dave like noah and jason yeah and whatever that is it just like when I, I i kind of was thinking about that stuff and i said you know it's this sort of kind of buddhist mantra of art that you know art when it's done the way neurosis does it it becomes like columns of air um you know it's like a full release of these tensions and these emotions but it's as natural as circular breathing it's it's it be, you become one, you know, and I and I know that, um, you know, Ginsburg, the the beat poet, um, he talks about that in one of the I think it's a Bob Dylan documentary that I show my kids, and he talks about how Dylan got to a state in the mid '60s writing these songs that were sort of like tapping into subconscious things and expressionistic sort of things where the words that came out of Dylan became like columns of air. And it was a, it's not going to be with Dylan forever. You know I mean? He's Dylan has a very up and down kind of, you know, ebbs and flows, good, good albums, bad albums, you know, past that era. But there was, he peaked pretty early. (laughs) He did, but, but he also like re-peaked in the seventies and then, you know, had like a little down point in the eighties and re-peaked in the night. And so like he, he's done that, but like, there's this moment where it's like Hendrix between like 67 and 69 where like, you know, Hendrix became one with his guitar Mm -hmm. and in a way like Dylan became one with like the words that were flowing out of, I mean, he was writing, I mean, the original version of like a Rolling Stone was 23 verses long and it, and it's six minutes long and it's five verses now. So like he just, you know, he was just like pouring shit out. It's like Stevie wonder when he wrote like 120 songs and like, 
four months. And Time it, was slower back then, man. It was, but <laughs> but I think there's the reason we talk about like artists at like a certain point, and this is where you know neurosis start to come into their own. In a in a different way, in an emotionally cathartic way, that um, you know they're tapping into some sort of stuff there. And, and like I said, I think the music on this record and a, a lot of you know even I would say "Sun That Never Sets" and, and other records that they've done, where again it's effortless. It's not effortless because it didn't require effort, but like they become one with whatever. It's yeah. There, there's no disconnect. You the know? interesting thing you never um, you never see credits for members it's as a band yeah um and there there's not a ton of bands that i really see that much like music's a pretty ego driven enterprise you know when you really get down to it and i think it's kind of a rarity when um like they'll say who plays what Mm -hmm. but like you didn't say who did the lyrics or who did you know who wrote that riff or i think it's a very communal kind of thing even like uh the i finally got my pre-order the new tribulation yeah and that always just says music by tribulation yeah yeah that's a good point you know it's like it's just like if you're really in it for the right not not even the right reasons but like i think when you're when you're really kind of at at this pure level where it's just it's about the band it's about the music what you create together it's not about anybody's singular sure kind of like part of the band it's the entire it's the only reason the band sounds like it does is because of these all these people together that are yeah creating something true a couple other things that jumped out um because i i can feel us like breaking away to get deeper so i'll, I'll say my final thoughts on on the, the title track there and it's long there's a lot going on in 12 minutes you know but i said like you know the bass playing in this um i said it's got some of the best distorted bass sound i said this side of like voyevod mm-hmm like whatever that that rumble is that Voyevod does, and I think we even talked a little bit about it with Jeff that some of that kind of comes through in like Manowar, mm-hmm. you know, like that's the weird part about early Manowar, and then Voyevod maybe pulled some of that from it. But and, and again, I don't think I don't think Neurosis was the same <laughs> to 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 Manowar, you know, maybe, yeah. but um, but but like I don't know. There's there that that part stood out to me, and then right around the eight minute mark um, is where I I think the first on this record unsettling electronics like start to intersect with the music. Yeah. I think it's, it's very attacking and, and un, you know, I said unsettling. So the word I kind of have, well, I think my initial, um, you know, when I first heard this in 96, um, Scott and Steve stand out. Mm-hmm. Cause I think that's like the most immediate, the guitars yeah, and the vocals sure. stand out. And then the more I listen to it, well, and, and Jason, I think those are the three things. That yeah. Stood the drumming. Out. Yep. Um, the more I've re-examined this, the, the electronics are not, they don't beat you over that. They're so in sync and mesh with everything that that and the, like, and, and Dave. Yeah. They're so the secret like, weapons or just like after you listen to like, they're the things that kind of like, uh, really kind of show themselves the more you really kind of penetrate the thing. Sure. Um, but I just can't get over how great Dave's voice is to the, the fucking devil growl thing. He, nobody sounds like that. Yeah. I don't know what the fuck he's doing to sound that way, but it's just, it sounds, it's, it's weird, but it sounds honest as hell. Sure. Uh, everybody's voice sounds. I was going to say, how would you characterize like pulling apart those three voices? Like maybe for somebody that's new to this record, what, how, how does somebody know who's who? Like, do you have like a defining I think, way? I think Steve has the, 
he's got the the bark and the growl and the grit that's that's kind of the more uh i'm trying to think of a good term for it he's but he, he sounds like more of the the alpha's not really white all right like the, the the aggressor yeah um like the authoritarian the authoritarian voice author, authoritative he's like, more, he's like more serious in yeah. certain ways yeah scott seems to be like almost tortured yeah a little bit and dave saw, seems like just like you know, like completely just opening up your inner fucking demon, yeah. as, as a bath would say. Yeah, but because um, yeah, they're just they're so unique, and I think man, it's just it's tough to to really like kind of even really talk about it, but or to, to break it down into very specific things. But they're so most 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 bands that would have three different vocalists, you wouldn't necessarily. They're kind of all complementary, mm-hmm. and these are all like. Scott and and um, and Steve are almost like octaves apart too, because Steve's a little he's a little growlier, yeah. And then Scott's got a little bit more of a screamy thing, and then Dave's just like the very he's like the bass register he's of low, vocals. Low. Yep. So they almost kind of like reflect their instruments too. It's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's cool. I I, I think I subconsciously thought about that, but yeah. but I think you're kind of onto something there. Yeah. And the way look at Dave's face when he growls too. <laughs> yeah it's like i don't even know how anything comes out of your yeah. face when you're doing that but it's yeah it's incredible yeah i mean again where these guys are coming from is is so fascinating one thing that i kind of like made note of and i don't think i really i, I mentioned a little bit minor threat and, and fugazi and some of that but i think it's interesting that some of the more like noisy hardcore anarcho kind of art artsy sort of bands like you could take these guys with pain of mind, early Napalm Death, early Swans, and all three of them start as like just so intense. And the way that all three of those bands kind of evolved, you know, you could kind of pull Napalm Death apart into like Godflesh and Jezu and like all the like offshoots that sort of came from them, Carcass, yeah. you know. And then you get from pain of mind to through Silver, and then you go from like Teeth and Cop to Children of God and, and beyond. It's like it's interesting this sort of journey that that those type of bands go through and we talked a lot about that in part one but but like the catharsis of this record is so interesting i mean what what stands out to you the like when somebody's like well what's this what's this album about yeah i mean like do you have do you have i mean i know you uh, kind of you kind of did some some deeper thinking on some of that kind i had of stuff, a very so. succinct uh well the three word explanation is that people understand pain mm. and i think it's very evident in the the writing of this that like it that these people the, the the band is putting through like deep emotional vulnerability in a way that's uh that's not it's not wallowing yeah it's uh they're almost what's the way to put it it's like they've already gone through it and this is like the documentation of it or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like uh, truth, like emotional truth is kind of how I feel that this record is. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, you know, the, the title we just heard through silver and blood and the title of the record, you know, you know, not to be speculative, but there, there could, you know, there are certain interpretations of that, you know, whether it's a, a reference to, you know, drugs, you know, like happiness is a warm gun from, from the Beatles is kind of a reference to, to the, the, the shooting of a needle of, of some sort, 
you, you, I think you pointed that out to me thinking about through silver and blood that this, would you say a foreign object that shouldn't be there kind of in something that is organic and natural? You know, I think, you, I think yeah, that's not as how you, what nicely said, but something maybe like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like the, this is like how the internal conflicts of our own minds feel like mm. um, uh, contemplations, our relationship to nature, the earth, um, sounds of terror, war, peace, enlightenment. Um, yeah, just all these like very heady. The thing, like all this stuff, could it could be a real personal internal catharsis, but it also could be the downfall of a civilization, the breaking up of a relationship, yeah. the, the ending of, or the the failure of your body working. Like it's that's why I think this works so well. Is it doesn't pin all of its you know ideas on one thing. It can be. I think different parts of your life, it, it can mean more different things to you because of life experience. I mean, there's a song we'll talk about later where the lyrics make reference to sort of like almost a, like an apocalypse, but that could be apocalypse of person yeah. or apocalypse of society, right? Exactly. Like it, it, and yeah. I, think, I think that's a really cool sort of way of, of looking at it, that it does a multitude of things at once. You know, and, and whatever you're going through and whatever you want to get out of a record like this, if you're willing to open yourself up to it, you can get a personal sort of, you know, a grilling, a personal sort of like mirror holding kind of experience. And it can be very harrowing and, and very but it's also, not fun. Yeah, you know? you're, you're going through this awful journey, but you come out the other end better. Sure. Yeah. If and you I'm, can, if you can make it all the way through the journey, then. Yeah. 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 Come out the other side and be better. And we'll talk about enclosure and flames <laughs> at the end. <laughs> we'll talk about the t the final song, but you know, yeah, I think I think that's kind of a way of looking at it. You know, but there's also like sort of this attempt that I think you started to see on Souls at Zero and Enemy of the Sun to recommiserate with the natural order of things, to recommiserate with the natural world. Um, you know, the entire last act of that title track. You know, after you get the sort of electronic kind of in you know sort of stuff that sort of comes in that last little movement I, it kind of becomes you know we talked about the sort of shamanistic sort of aspects but i almost like a native like ghost dance type thing like where this spiritual dance even in in the sort of the native sort of world you know i mean i talked about oh, whirling a, dervishes but i mean there's, uh, also there's a that. lot of i think native american ideas and yeah um, especially like drumming is such a uh, important part of Native American ritual. and African, you yeah, know, really like kind of uh, animistic, mm -hmm. kind of like you know pagan type religions, you know. On the yeah, like there's uh, talking about the the, the, the Sufis, correct? The, the dervishes, yeah. Um, yeah. That, but there's also like you know tribes in uh, in Africa that they'll dance until they're just completely out of their minds, yeah. And like as a as a rite of passage, and like those, but those types, this type of music is what is the soundtrack to those types of rituals. Yeah. This is like a modern interpretation of a, not necessarily a uh, rite of passage kind of ritual, but, but well, it maybe is like a rite of passage, not a, yeah. not from like being a, a child to a man, but from being, um, from being a young adult to a, a fully form, a, a person that's gone through some harrowing shit mm -hmm. and come out positive instead of letting it break you. Sure. This is kind of how I feel a lot of this is, and it's interesting too, because like you know, and I don't know, like this is an interesting angle to sort of think about. But like something we were actually talking about in my my history classes, we were just talking about the the Haitian Revolution and um, 
you know, it, it was basically slaves that were rising up against their oppressors and, and founding a free republic. And to kind of kick everything off, they had sort of a tribal voodoo ceremony with like, you know, um, drinking of pig's blood and, and stuff that like to the, the sort of Christian world would seem very harrowing. But to them, it was very empowering. And something like the ghost dance was natives resisting colonialism and and. And in a lot of ways, like music or, or sort of tribal things like this is is political in some ways. And political not in like a the politics of our time, but political in sort of like a man, you know, man fighting against its inorganic nature and stuff like that. You know, like slavery and oppression and colonialism is not the natural order of things. As you said before, like we're supposed to have movement. We're supposed to have like this liberation and, and freedom and stuff. And there needs to be a balance between the our man-made world and the natural world. Yeah. And, and if there's not a balance, then we know, you know, there's lots of parables for what happens. Sure, sure, absolutely. But <laughs> but it, like, but I also like that music does for the state of man who is in a, like a, a, the, a, that state of oppression or something like that. And that can be self-oppression. Like addiction on some level is self-oppression, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're, you're closing yourself off through chemical imbalances or silver being brought into the natural bloodstream of, of things. Yeah. And, and you're not like kind of seeing things with like a clear vision. And I think, uh, well, yeah, I'm, a lot of addiction is, um, I think it's, it's not wanting to deal with reality. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's like a cover. Um, something that, um, Bill from Mastodon will say in a, a later interview clip that we'll hear is he said, when you go see neurosis, like you have to like, what do you say? He'll say it better than I did, but you got to clean off your third eye. Like if you really want to have like the true experience, like yeah. you see that, like you got to like the only, the only get, time, get yourself vulnerable, man. The only know? time I haven't um, really felt that way seeing them was seeing them play during the day at uh, the MDF. You saw them a second time? Cause I saw them at MDF when they played at night with like lightning playing in the background. It was fucking awesome. Was there another time was I wasn't there with you? Or was that a different festival you saw him at? Man, I don't know. Because the time we saw him at MDF was the year Voivod played and Coroner played. And they played at night. And in the background, there was all this fucking... It looked like Thor. It looked like a fucking Marvel movie going on in the background. I might be thinking of something else. Yeah, that time, that was awesome for me. I, you were there at that time. But yeah, the, the, I can't imagine seeing them during the day, I guess. So Maybe I'm just having a weird... Yeah, because I remember... Like, I mean, the they other, do it at OzFest, but... But, the other times, yeah, yeah. that I um, I saw him for that uh, contaminated festival that Relapse did in oh boy, that was early two thousand. Early two thousand, it was Sun that Never Sets. Yeah, it might have been the last time they used uh, they had the visuals. The, the and visuals. Stuff. So that was the only time I saw him with. I that. wish I would have. That was uh, I think you and Brian and maybe Jeff. Did you guys all or Coughlin? It was me, Mark, and Susie went. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I know Jeff went to one of those. I didn't go. He's, I yeah, I don't think he went to yeah. that one. There was a couple. This was the first one, I think. I don't know why. I must have been busy with college-type stuff that was going on. You might have been overseas or something. Yeah, I might have been. Yeah. I never made it to Contaminate Fest. I made it to Jersey Fest and things like that, you know, when they moved Metal Fest over there for a well, while. This, yeah, but. I stayed with Chris and uh, the um, lady he was dating at the time in the this pretty tiny little apartment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for having three people stay yeah. there as a... Luckily, I was with my girlfriend at the time, so I we got the A bed. Oh, nice! So that was nice. quality, quality. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, so I just think that, you know, I don't know. I I guess coming back to one thing I want to talk about, which is the use of these sort of electronics a little bit um, and, and sampling and, and different things like that. I guess the only band that I, I guess in the metal world, was anybody else doing this at this stage? The only band I could think of is like I Hate God on you know, in the name of suffering and, and where they're using it in a way where it's, it, it is disconcerting and, and kind of unsettling and uncomfortable. You know, it's not just keyboards. It's like, yeah, it's doing something else. Did you, you know, know at that stage in your guys's metal listening, like if there were other bands that were like doing things like this, I mean, not really metal, but the only thing I can think of is ministry. Yeah, yeah, just one fix, and you know, yeah, and like, like the NWO. I remember seeing like the them on the Psalm sixty nine tour a couple of times. Yeah, that was a pretty incredible. Like the even the tribal kind of drumming thing. They had two drummers at the time, sure. and yeah, I think it like Scarecrow. Like it was just like yeah, really repetitive kind and of like thing. The, yeah, like the laughing. Yeah, I guess downward spiral and, nine inch nails was doing yeah. kind of like disconcerting. You know, things but I think like this that. is on a different level. Sure, um, that's more it's like not just inorganic, samples. right? Yeah, like, like it's like think about a band that's really trying to get in touch with like the organic nature of the universe, but yet they're using like swirling electronics and samples, and yet it's it fits. Yeah, for me, like when I hear Nine Inch Nails, the reason they're called quote unquote industrial is because there's something inorganic about it, right? And mechanical, and like to me, there's nothing mechanical about Neurosis, you know? Um, No. So I think that's. But yeah, I think you're right. Those were bands that were using that, but just doing it in a different way. That's why it was. Yeah, it was, it was really cool to talk to to know about that, like how how he did that, like how he approached that stuff, not being like a necessarily like a, a guy that like took piano lessons as a kid and was like a sure a keyboard player. Yeah. Um, but I think it's even more interesting because they bring in like like you'll have just like the, almost that that death ray noise, where it's just this like kind of piercing, mm. you know overarching noise over the whole thing or um yeah it just it works so well with everything else that it's almost you almost really have to listen hard to hear it mm-hmm. it's not it's not like uh as evident as like the faith the more keyboards or or something yeah. where it's just like oh there, there's amorphous doing their keyboards it's, it's yeah, so like emperor integrated. or something like that yeah, yeah. it's not yeah. like emperor's very classical approach yes to the whole thing this is just what's best for the song what's yep. what like makes us get there closer yeah to where we're, we're it's very at. stitched together diy layered um but not layered in like a it's like layered by like i don't know it like there's like i i think i mentioned in part one there are parts in this album where like there's 16 different keyboard like electronic things like stacked on top of each other yeah and like that's I don't know if that's by accident or design or it's just like they're just making it up in the studio with like Billy Anderson and you know like well, said, trying yeah, trying what was, they can. Everything was figured out before they went in. Okay, that's right. They did say it was very intentional and so I think like that, that the yeah they're not just like oh let's fucking hit this knob. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, they did I think say I think that. it was all very very intentional and yeah. every I think it sounds like they've got a real collaborative spirit. Sure, where everybody's like just trying to make the the thing that kind of hits where they're going. I guess maybe what I'm thinking is like. There, you know, they mentioned that in one of the interview clips that we'll be hearing, um, that they're kind of using like some digital technology in the studio for the first time, you know, and they're kind of, I think he mentioned they're kind of pissed that he didn't do it on analog and stuff like that. Yeah. There's, there's no, um, there's no gaps in between the, the tracks. Yeah. Yeah. So, and they did that digitally instead of you could have done it 
analog, but they thought like the engineer was just like, oh yeah, this is this is like the new thing, and yeah. <laughs> so there will be no remaster anytime soon. Is basically the takeaway of that. And so speaking of like, I guess you know we're about to hear about some of the sampling here in a second, and then we're going to hear it uh, in a big, big way with one of the two kind of sampling tunes, which is Rehumanize. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, this is kind of Noah's time to sort of shine and really sort of almost like his coming out kind of moment yeah. where he gets to sort of create some sort of soundscapes and hit the listener with, you know, Joseph Campbell stuff. And um, he's pitching the voices and, and doing some weird things that, you know, it reminds me of like session nine, like when, you know, they're listening to like the pitched yeah. kind of, you know, weird recordings that are slightly distorted. And it's, yeah, there'll be something he'll bring up in the, in the interview yeah, too. They like, yeah. Uh, flip it around and, and pitch it down. Yeah. Or whatever. So, yeah. You know, and they're hitting on, you know, they're drawing on a lot of like cool historical myth, mythological sort of things here, you know, outside they're of Joseph from Campbell. The, yeah, it was the Joseph Young Bill Moyers stuff. did this, uh, power mythology, PBS right? thing, the power myth in the early eighties. Yeah. Uh, the, they did it over two summers right before Joseph Campbell died. And ever since I was a teenager, I've, I've had it on some like CD or the, the book transcript or the uh, audio cassette. Um, and it's always just been like almost like like a new agey religious experience for me as a kid, like sure. figuring out these different things and to hear it in this as something that was like important. I don't know how important the it was or if it's just something they found, but um, that would like added another level because yeah. that that was like my my weird uh, entry point into spirituality starts with Star Wars, yeah, which and is then based off Campbell's mythology yeah, stuff, then goes yeah, into Campbell, the and journey, then goes into yeah. Buddhism and other things too, sure. but. Um, it's just interesting to have like stuff that struck me in a you know a powerful way as a as a kid making its way into this too. Well, and like, being used as it in a different uh, context. Too. Sure, yeah, and I mean Joseph Campbell did so many really interesting things as a history teacher. When I first started looking into him and and kind of getting into him in college and stuff, I knew about him through Star Wars in high school, but I didn't. I didn't get a hold of the book until I think I found it at maybe Paperback Book Exchange or yeah. some bookstore somewhere I found, and I still have it, the my classroom. But I remember he, he you know, it really started to blow my mind because I already had my – the way I thought about religion was fairly skeptical, you know, if you were to ask me in, in high school and in college and things like that. And when he starts kind of connecting the dots between, you know um, – it's all comparative religion. It's, it's Jesus' birth and the, the death and, you know, like Hindu gods and goddesses and, yeah. and, you know, like how they fit with like Osiris and Isis and like how they're, it's it, just, it, it kind of just confirmed what I already had like a sneaking suspicion of. And so yeah. like, I appreciated it because it was educational. It wasn't just like hating on religion. It was, it was proving to me what I kind of thought that there was a, a, a massive human element that was, well, it was connecting yeah, dots uh, for people who needed those dots connected because they didn't want to let go of the previous beliefs. You and, know, and, and it's way, like it's ways they're just they're It's mythology for us to understand the, our place in the world really. Yeah. And he, he says something in that, like that kind of got me really early that I, I've always kind of felt that too. That it was weird that people took the Bible literally Yeah. when these are, these are parables and metaphors for how to leave a virtuous life. <laughs> it's not literally Jesus res was resurrected and, you know, 
all this Virgin stuff that, births was like made up hundreds of years after the original Bible. Yeah, like all that stuff is. And like, there were virgin births in Egyptian mythology yeah. and in Hindu. You know, again, it's a, it's a trope. Yes, um, and like I think that stuff is just incredibly interesting. Um, I have a lot more respect for um, that type of like comparative religion than I do just for like I I grew up Catholic, so I have a certain entry point into. <laughs> You know, the guilt and yeah. there's all kinds of shit that, you know, you can talk about there. But um, I think it's immensely interesting for the, the comparative religious. Yeah. And like just to understand ourselves is that's really what it's about in our place in the universe and how to how to be cool with each other and not kill each other. Yeah. In a certain sense, like taking that stuff in like a very literal sense would be as absurd as like the current younger generation treating like Marvel as if it was true because in a lot of ways, like superheroes are kind of modern mythology for like certain generations of people. And there's like moral lessons there and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, like the idea of like somebody watching the Marvel movies and then being like, well, this is real. Like this has to have happened. You know, like to me, that's like kind of, it's an extrapolation. Yeah, yeah, that's that like that's absurd. Like you know, to me, that's like treating everything from like religious texts as if it was like hundred percent true, instead of just like oh, I could learn some parables and you know, yeah. fairy tales are the same way. You know, yeah. I mean that sort of thing. Like you're not meant to take like Cinderella literally or, or sure. you know whatever, but like that's how people have treated religion, unfortunately, throughout human history and have waged wars in the name of that literal interpretation. And well, and they've used, like you know, knowledge is power with, you know, up until how many years ago, hundreds of years ago that most people couldn't read. Yeah. And yeah. the knowledge was the power of the ruling class and the elite. Sure. So. And the priests were the only ones who, you know. Yeah. And that gave them more divinity and closer to God sure. and all this bullshit. It became a bastardized, you know, power Mm-hmm. dynamic than it became like anything that was really well, I think good it, for people. I think it still exists today. You know, like I don't think, I think the reason school funding is like a complicated controversial issue is because like the, the, the ruling class on some level doesn't really want the lower class to have like total access to like great education because there would be, oh, yeah. they'd be way harder to fucking manipulate and rule over them if they get like properly like, critical thinking skills. Yeah, you know the people I mean? in power like, want to stay in power. Yeah. And that's you know. why we've got people that have been in there for 50 years now and, yeah. you know, not not really doing anything. I think, I don't begrudge anybody there. Um, if, if you're spiritual and you want to, you know, you want to go to church, you want to go to your mosque, you want to go to the synagogue or whatever, that's totally cool when it becomes where it oppresses other people yeah. and putting their ideas on other people yeah. is where I have an issue with it. But I think it's great if you have some sure. type of spiritual, I think, we're we're missing a lot of that in modern life right now and uh unfortunately use things like social media and other like kind of gross tactics to kind of fill that void a little sure, bit yeah um so I, th- I think ultimately with something we need um we just don't have a modern version of it right yeah now. yeah yeah so i think you know if you if you're not familiar with joseph campbell it's it's great it's like really super good. like a, a an idiot 10 year old kid like me could understand it yeah. or like me in my mid forties, I still get something out of it. It's great. It's good stuff. I remember really, I mean, there are moments where like, you know, like writers of shows are like in your wavelength. And I remember there were two things that cued me off to the fact that like, uh, this would be a weird thing to talk about in our neurosis episode, but fuck it. It's what we do. But, uh, 
I remember in like the first season of Gilmore Girls, they talked about like Nick Drake. And I was like, oh, that's kind of wild. And then I remember, I think it was in the second season, they talked about their annual tradition of renting uh, power mythology, uh, Lorelai and, and, and Rory. And like, that was like a, a something that like mother daughter, they just did and they fucking loved it. And yeah. I was like, Huh, that's really weird. Like that's that's not something you just throw into like your average like that was like TV show or something. You know, somebody was clever enough to like know what me, that was. Me and my mom would rent uh, the original Carl Sagan Cosmos series Ooh. from the library when yeah. I was a kid because it was just there's just something about like that was what made learning interesting when the stakes were just you know yeah. universal and galactic. Sure, <clears throat> and the way that that he could easily the, the same thing with Campbell. I think the, uh, him and Sagan both made. Really complex ideas, very relatable and understandable. Sure. And that's something I think I've tried to take to heart in my approach to things is like trying to become a storyteller in how I kind of explain history and kids seem to get into it more from that reason because it's not about memorization. It's about just like it's not about one's eighteen twelve war. Yeah, it's just stories and yeah, exactly. (laughs) Things like that. So so I think it's cool, like the things that he's doing in a song like this, you know, with with those kind of samples and stuff. I think a couple other things too, like bands that, that we didn't maybe bring up as much in maybe part one is. I don't. Did you ever get into? Mike kind of turned me onto this stuff for a little while, and I don't know if you went on this journey, but like some of the, like the weird like noise stuff, like AMM or mu- music electronica. No. So AMM was like a kind of like a pre krautrock type thing. I think they were german they're european of some sort and they they do some kind of different like things that like rehumanize kind of does you know like um they're an interesting band it's i probably should have brought them up more when we were talking about like throbbing gristle and stuff like that but they're a little bit more listenable but um i think trevor was like into them i got trevor nod into it a little bit through mike i don't know why it was like different than the uh, like the Noi and Faust and all that yeah, shit. Yeah, it doesn't have the beat aspect to it, so it doesn't okay. have that kraut beat. It's more like just really like wavelengths of noise. It's probably closer to like the um like the hunting lodge stuff that we okay. heard in, in part part two and stuff. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to play you some. I have some CDs upstairs. Because like Noi and Noi two have that oh, it's, repetition. It's groove, yeah. But it doesn't have the repetition to where it becomes shamanistic. That's true. It's it's there's a bouncy it's, still it's, something it's almost little... just like I'm not really sure what I always liked that stuff, but I don't really know what what the idea was behind it. Well, if you if you'll here's here's my theory on it, and and you know, maybe you might disagree. I think the very essence and nature of like why it's called something like kraut rock is because on some level it's divorced from the sort of African blues origins of most other rock and roll it's that's why it calls itself sort of kraut rock because it's sort of coming out of almost a purely european ideological philosophy and intellectualism and so there's something really intellectual about kraut rock yeah but there's it's lacking the sort of like organic roots that i think native american music and african music present as a foundation of of rock and roll so so it has kind of a a lack of that kind of passionate feeling. It's fun and very cool music and it's intellectual to think about can and Faust. And I love those records mm. and those bands, but I don't get as emotionally connected to any of that music because of, I think for me, Kraut rock is it's, it's, it's a see into itself, you know? Um, it's almost like kind of like when you listen to like certain aspects of like the scorpions, the scorpions are like 
disconnect it from like the British blues, hard rock origins of heavy metal. And our, yeah. that's where that Teutonic kind of like classical perfectionism of like the solos and, you know, the things Uli maybe, uh, Uli still had some Hendrix in them, but you get what I'm saying? Like there's yeah. something, and that's maybe I think why power metal for you and I is kind of disconnected because power metal is like drawing on a lot of not blues African roots. It's drawing on a lot more European classical roots, which is very white and very, yeah. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I like classical music. I'm not, but, 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 it's, that's also, but it's a it's, different pool. It you seems, know? yeah, it pulls, especially power metal, I think pulls from that whole, like, uh, you know, sitting around the Oktoberfest and the, the yeah. chants and all that kind of like yeah. communal Folk music, metal, power metal, whatever. Yeah. And for some reason it works with blind guardian and not with a lot of other bands, you know? Yeah. So, but, but does that make sense? What I'm kind of saying that yeah. Krautrock rock is almost disconnected from, and I think blues. Well, I think it's disconnected from spirituality. Yeah. 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 Blues music is rooted in gospel, spiritual slave songs, you know, all that yeah. kind of stuff, yeah. you know, on some visceral level. Well, that, and Germany as a country has gone through some fucked up shit. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, <laughs> as someone of, of German descent, not not that I really you know dealt with any of that because people are already over here. But it's not your. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's such a it's a it's an interesting culture to contemplate too. With sure. how, what do you do after a couple generations of? I mean, that's a a stain that is mm-hmm. never going away. Yeah. Um, so it's almost like get away from anything that's even understandable yeah yeah. (laughs) i don't know yeah so anyways that's that's something i saw a faust documentary like 10 years ago that oh yeah kind of went into that but i don't really remember much yeah i don't think i've I've never really seen too much like kraut rock documentary stuff i I haven't really looked either yeah i've got a kraut rock book and a few other things but you know like another band you know Craftwork kind of has that about them there's like an electronic quality that's very cool and rhythmic and stuff but it's yeah you're right there's nothing spiritual there's nothing you know Um, there's another band too. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but they're they've sort of like they're like the evil version of that type of music called Current ninety three. Do you ever mm, hear those guys? No. They're very dark. They're kind of uh some of their stuff deals with like Aleister Crowley and, and things like that, but it's kind of electronic and noisy in, mm-hmm. in origins and stuff. And I think the keyboard player before Noah, um, I can't remember what his name was. He's in Simon uh, something. Yeah, I yeah. think he was kind of a big current '93 fan. I, I don't know if Noah is a, as well or not, but yeah. I'm sure. No, yeah, these guys. If you, if they're listening to all the other stuff we were talking about in part one, they came across current '93 for sure. They're, yeah, know? they're they're coil adventurous listeners. Current '93, they're kind of part of of some of that those kind of conversations, and so. Um, yeah, so I think this is, you know, this is what kind of like what we heard in Hunting Lodge and Tribes of Nurat, and it's in Rehumanize here. And then we go into I, and um, I is one of the more straightforward, short, staccato kind of songs on the whole album. I mean, that's it's maybe the most easy neurosis song on this record, maybe besides Locust Star. Locust Star yeah. has kind of like got its own, but this is like very, you know, it's, it's layered, it's punchy, it's got, you know. Um, it's got a good. Dave Grawl in the beginning. Yeah, great. Yep, yep. There's a, um, some cool like uh, swans kind of stuff that's going on in kind of the middle part when Noah's synths and samples start to, I said, pierce the senses a little bit. And there's even like a really cool around the three minute mark of this song. There's like this cool synth layered vocal part that I said reminds me of like Mongolian like throat chants, but it's very. It's not like overtly loud. It's again layered. It's, yeah, you gotta like look for it and listen for it a little bit. 
Um, and I just said the sludge riff in this song forms the foundation that can be heard as like very formative in bands like Isis and Mastodon. And yeah. it's like converge that like later era convert it's, it's, it's right here in this kind of song, you know? So um, it's not one I wrote a lot about because it's short. There's, you know, it's very, like I said, it just kind of gets, gets right into it. So, um, but yeah, let's, uh, let's get into some stuff here. We're going to hear about some sampling stuff and then uh, the appropriately go from there into rehumanize an eye. And then uh, we're going to come out with a kind of a, a longer, not so much a testimonial, but almost more of a little mini interview with, uh, with Bill from, from Mastodon. So enjoy. I wonder if this, if we could talk real quick about um, the, the use of sampling on the record is, is super interesting. Cause there doesn't, I can't think of another <clears throat> band that kind of did it in the same way. And also Noah coming from being a guitar player, you kind of just, you learn this as you guys were putting things together, correct? Yeah. Like how to use the samplers and how was, how was that process work? It was really hard. Um, I kind of jumped in with like, hey, you know, so here's the deal. These are like my lifelong friends. My other band had sort of come apart. And uh, yeah, I was a guitar player. and But I was also a uh, recording engineer guy. And so um, when Neurosis was looking for somebody to take this role... I, I think that they realized they had two choices. They could find a keyboard player, and none of us knew one, you know, because we come from the punk world. <laughs> no surprise there. Yeah. Um, you know, he said so, bands. <laughs> right. Uh, um, or they could find a friend who's willing to learn it and figure it out. And because of my uh, closeness with all of the people and my ability to um, figure out, you know, recording equipment, they approached me with that idea and I was like, yeah, yeah, I think I could do that. And um, it really did just open up our whole world in terms of like what was possible. It Mm -hmm. was like, it was a serious game changing thing because suddenly you, it's the anything instrument, you know, you can play the ocean or you can play a jackhammer. You know, there's anything yeah. you could dream of, you could put it in there. And we spent a lot of time coming up with some really cool ideas. Like we, you know, put a microphone, you know, right inside the blender and turn it on, you know, <laughs> um, put one like underneath the vacuum cleaner and turn it on, you know, things yeah. like that. Um, find things that were broken um, and uh, and sample that. Um I remember, you know, we had an old DAT tape that was glitchy and and chirping and weird and sample that, you know, Um, power tools, things like that, you know. Um, So for that record, we really did kind of make make our own samples a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. We we used it for, you know, found voices in things that we were searching for that were expressing something that was um uh resonant with what we were looking for in terms of sort of philosophy and spiritual kind of seeking paths you're right you know yeah. um but the the actual sonic stuff uh the nastiness like we were trying to make things sound like um pretty fucked up and broken on purpose, you know, and then, um, and then just finding ways of pitching it in a way that works with the guitar. 
um, hitting it in a chord that creates a sort of a cyclic loop that might be in time with what Jason is doing, you know? Um, you know, one of the, I'll tell you, one of the go-to approaches to anything that we were doing back then with the samples was to flip it backwards and pitch it down an octave, right? Um, that's a secret I'm telling the world right now. <laughs> <laughs> Never. Um, but another thing we would do is distort it and pitch it up and then hit two notes on the keyboard that are right next to each other. So you get this very, this really dissonant sound, um, which sounds like um, the high, the high end stuff in the song. I, mm -hmm. it's kind of like uh, a death ray or something, you know, and I don't yeah. even know what the sound was that we pitched up and distorted to make it sound like that. We had a very, um, short memory for where these sounds came from. Cause once we landed on the thing, the, the sort of unique, um, fucked up quality that we we're absolutely looking for, then that was it. And then we moved on, you know? Um, so people ask me, what was that sample? Like, I don't remember. Yeah. Anymore, <laughs> you know? So there's like a real physicality too, to, I've no, I don't know if I've ever seen anybody, do like sound design in such a a way that's so physical was it a struggle to find like specific types of equipment to be able to do that instead of just the the keyboard itself like the because I, I was watching some old videos of you guys i think at one of the Ozfests, and it's just it's like going to church you guys are just it's pretty incredible to watch how like cathartic the experience is um that was that was an interesting little um adjustment to kind of figure that out you know because like you know like we we're saying i wasn't a keyboard player you know mm -hmm. like and like you said i was much more of a sound designer and i could find my way through a piano melody or play a cello line with one hand but you know when it when it was appropriate and right but uh um to uh to come up with a way that was physically more satisfying than pushing a little key on a keyboard mm -hmm. to create these explosive sounds or these abrasive sounds um, was just kind of, uh, it just made sense when I found like, oh, here's, here's a uh, pedal board, but it's for your feet, right? <laughs> and the white keys are a foot long and the black keys are four inches tall. And I could actually just play this with my fists you know, and, um, and that just, it just seemed to make sense. And so it kind of took off from there. And then, you know, there's also like, okay, here's a bell part. I could actually use a, um, like a drum pad here and a drum stick and, and make it a percussive feeling to playing that rhythmic loop, you know, um, or yeah. Things like just that. in case anyone listening is wondering, like, no, football foot pedals are not actually made to be hit with your fists either, but Noah's <laughs> become an expert at repairing those right before the game. <laughs> yeah, for many years, I traveled with two of them because one was always broken. And so I'd be fixing one on the side stage um, right before I get out there and break the one that's on stage, you know. But, yeah, they break. Yeah, because the only other person I think I've seen, well, I, I saw like in, in heavy metal, Ian Hill would play one of those, but I've never seen anybody like just punch the shit out of it the entire show. So. 
It's interesting too because you know this idea of sound construction. Because I remember coming across an interview. I think it was with you, Steve, and you talked about the first time you encountered heavy metal, like listening to Black Sabbath records. You were more interested in like the, the almost the production of it than the actual music and how it was constructed. And I don't know if that's like something that a lot of the people in neurosis were just kind of interested in the organic way sounds come together, or if that was just a, something that the two of you guys have in common as you talk about this stuff. I think we all trip on that, man. Like, like, uh, you know, I never, I was always just as a kid looking for the most intense music I could find according to whatever I, you know, bumped into, whether that was, you know, ACDC or kiss and, later on Iron Maiden and, and, or Black Sabbath. But I, I remember even like listening to my parents' records, like fucking Jim Croce or John Denver record mm-hmm. with headphones and, and like understanding that, oh, there's a stereo image here and shit's happening in my left side of my brain and my right side of the brain that's different, you know? And, or during the fade out, there was a phaser, you know, like the vocal was flanging. Mm-hmm. Now I know it's like, oh, they were using a tape flange on the fade out of the vocal. You know, but like yeah. back then that was like magic. It's like, what is going on with this stereo image? And I, one of my earliest Black Sabbath uh, experiences was you know, taking my parents, you know, they, they were typical people of the 70s. They had a nice hi-fi, you know, mm-hmm. a, a Sansui receiver and some nice big speakers. And I remember moving them into the middle of the floor so that they were like headphones on either side of my head <laughs> and, and hearing Tony Iommi's layers of guitars, like separate left and right blew my mind wide open. I think probably that was the equivalent to, um, you know, a, a drug experience, you know, like all of a sudden I knew that this was about something three-dimensional, not mm. just songs. I think I had a similar experience to that in like middle school listening to like all along the watchtower the first time and really <sighs> listening to the solo and just like, I think I recorded on a cassette tape off the radio. Like I missed the first 20 seconds, but I would just like <laughs> rewind the solo and just try and think about what all these different guitar wavelengths that he was doing. And yeah, I mean, I never yeah. played, but at the same time, like I started to really appreciate the construction of music in that way. You know, I met David in the first day of high school, so ninth grade, and um, uh, one of my very first like mind blowing uh, experiences from the production of something was me and him in my room with the strobe light on, listening to Axis Bold as Love. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's great. <laughs> And that's like, okay, this is like, it's like a masterpiece of mm-hmm. that, you know? It's, yep. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, when we were in high school, we would drive around with the Umaguma cassette tape. Uh-huh. And we would just drive for hours on country roads and trip ourselves out. And we weren't doing drugs, but we were just having experiences listening to the things they were doing on that record trying to like whoa this is fucked up man you know or whatever but but we want to do that right now right 
What's that? Can we go on? I want to do that right now. <laughs> yeah. Can we go on a road trip with the <laughs> yeah. with the Uma Guma cassette? Like, yeah. yeah. I'm in. Some <laughs> Michigan go. country roads. Yeah. <laughs> do it. Uh, but it was weird because we were kind of straight edge. So we were just looking for other ways to like expand our minds or something, you know? Mm-hmm. So we would just do it with music mostly. <laughs> What's it like out there? It's impersonal. It is the machine, if you like to put it that way, that has created you. There's only darkness everywhere. Darkness and water. There's no light without darkness. In the beginning, there was only the great self reflected in the form of a person. Matter and spirit. Reflecting and found nothing but itself. Body and mind and soul is what unifies. This soul knows that I'm capable of evil.
you know, I really, I discovered neurosis early on, like in the early 90s. Um, but I didn't fully understand neurosis until we toured with them when I was in a band called Today is the Day for a hot minute. We did a tour. We always had this, like, the other guy in the band, Steve, was always holding over our heads. We're going to get a tour of neurosis. And it's going to be great. And that was kind of like our big plan for, for the band was to do this tour of neurosis. And it, was, it was like kind of what kept kept the band alive, you know, at the moment. And uh, like I said, I didn't really understand full impact of neurosis until we got on tour with them. We shared a tour bus with them in 1999 them and Voivod, and we were the opening band. We toured Europe, my first time to Europe. And I watched Neurosis soundcheck every night, and I watched their, just about every night I watched their full performance, and I was fucking blown away every night. Like, we had, actually, prior, let me back up, prior to the, um, prior to the European tour, we did a few handful of shows with those guys. Remember like Madison and Milwaukee, I want to say we played a couple of shows with uh, Neurosis. I mean, we're talking uh, 22, 23 years ago. And I just remember being like, wow, now I fucking get it. Holy shit, these guys are... I remember talking to Noah Landis and I was like, man, you guys are such an incredible fucking band. And he's like, man, we're, we're not just a band, dude. We're like a fucking <laughs> and I was like yeah that's the best way you you can put it you know it's a religious experience seeing neurosis play by far I believe that neurosis the the first thing that sticks out to me the most is is that they are a wall of sound they're they're like the heaviest fucking band I've ever seen and I thought bands like the Melvins and Helmet yeah I thought bands like like Deftones, although, you know, I thought they were pretty loud and heavy live, but man, there's just, you don't have to be super loud to be heavy, and you don't have to play super slow to be heavy. It's the intensity and emotion of the mixture of their their songwriting and their lyrics and the way that they present it. Uh, just like literally melts the fucking flesh off your face when you're watching them. Every time. Goosebumps, just this you evokes this feeling inside of, of pure inner it's like an inner fucking zen peace sadness happiness it's an emotional like roller coaster of feelings watching them play it's just it's almost like you can see into the soul of each member of the band and you're just like holy shit it's like someone someone who's living in a world of pain like a fucking war zone or something you know you're just kind of it get, neurosis gives you a, a peek into their world. And, you know, everybody, everybody has, like, secret pain and, and, and shit going on that you don't see on the outside. You know, a lot of people are really good at hiding hiding their their pain and their feelings and uh, their, their mental stress and anger. Uh, that most people hold it in and they they just keep it inside. But when neurosis plays, you you fucking see you see it all all too you see it all too well, like in your face, like this is fucking reality. We're showing you the inside of our skin. <laughs> it's pretty deep, man. It's like 
no one no one even comes close to doing that really there's a lot of bands that are very emotional and, and kind of touch the surface but you even even in being uh playing it like quietly and acoustically i've always tried to take away i've always tried to let that influence my writing i feel like neurosis like paved the way opened the door for a band like ourselves to have an outlet for the emotional pain and uh suffering that that goes on within our personal lives you know like an outlet and and they kind of said like hey this is how you do it and this is you do it from the heart you do it for real a lot of times back in the early days when we would play a riff and we weren't sure about it we would say would neurosis play this riff (laughs) (laughs) we would like you know a lot of times braun would call up scott because on that Today is the day tour that we did back in 99. Ron and I got really close to uh, Scott and Steve and Jason and Noah and Pete, who was doing uh, the visuals, and, of course, David. The whole crew, you know, we, we really got close to those guys. We were, we were cramped up in a very small tour bus together for five weeks, so, you know, like summer camp. You know, just, just to me, like, what I always try to take away from – from them is like I, I like to be seen when we come out on stage as like no frills no stupid jokes no no bullshitting just come out and like just destroy lay waste to the place like uh you know i've created a, i try to create a lot of samples in between songs during songs stuff that keeps the show moving and there's never like a dull moment of uh I just, I guess, I like, I like the seriousness of being a neurosis show. You, you know, you go see like, you know, certain bands you go to see, and you know what you're gonna get. You go see the Beastie Boys. It's like, okay, they're kind of jumping around. It's you, you got to be ready to like squeegee your third eye when you go to a neurosis show, and uh, it just kind of changes you, it changes your DNA when you see them. Mm-hmm. Try to. You know, me personally, it's like I, I try to continue that kind of, you know, like we're we're definitely not a bunch of serious dudes in real life. We're very, very silly and love to joke around and, and do stupid shit and have have a good time. But I always feel like I wanna I want that presence that neurosis has on stage. I want that I want to command that sort of cultish dedication of fans that are just like shh be quiet fucking Mastodon is playing I, I have to I have to get in the zone and fucking I just want to soak it all in and, and watch the visuals and, and listen to every note of the music and the, and the vocals and soak it in I, I don't you know what I mean it's not a background I don't want to be like they're they're just like they're just like seeing a god like a, a deity you know it's like whoa it's not like you can just you can't like talk over watching them play and you can't walk away. It's like you're drawn to it like a magnet. You're just like, holy shit. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a miracle happening on stage. Like, I feel like there's so many bands that try to emulate neurosis in a lot of ways, like by down tuning and you, know, you can down tune all you want, but you're not going to sound like neurosis because it's, it's like I said before, it's, it's not about how low you tune or how slow you play. It's just the choice of, like, the phrasing of their fucking sound, their riffs. 
But I feel like there are a lot of bands that, that try to do, you know, when I remember when I first heard ISIS, I was like, wow, it sounds like these guys are trying to be neurosis. <laughs> which, which I, I found ISIS very awesome as well. They're very, they got it. You know what I mean? Aaron Turner and, and all those guys. We did a lot of touring with them back in the day. Uh, great guys. Fucking great bands. Um, I feel like Neurosis probably started a bunch of bands that were very, uh, a lot more serious about music and adding emotion and visuals and the whole, like, samples and all the, you know, I, th- I think for us, we try to, the way I try to channel my neurosis is, is by playing as much evil evil riffs as I can, like trying to come up with spooky, evil-sounding notes and, and stuff like that. And uh, if, it's not, if it's not evil, then it's, it's extremely sad-sounding. You know what I mean? Like, that's just kind of my M.O. It's like, and, that, and that's just, you know... I come from a more punk rock kind of fun metal kind of background. You know, neurosis is kind of like that mature, mature music. You know what I mean? Where there's no fucking around. There's no smiles. This is all fucking like a train, like a train accident. It's just like, fuck. It's like a burning building. You know, it's like man, people fucking jumping to their death. Like, <laughs> I mean. I have a certain image of Steve Von Till with his shirt off. And it's when he was a little heavier, I think. He kind of had a beer belly. And we, I think we were in Madison. I think it was one of the first times we had met. And they were about to, I think they were about to go on stage. And it was fucking hot as shit. And it was like, it was, it was really humid in the middle of summer. And he took his guitar. Yeah, I think he had his Telecaster, what he plays all the time. I was a Telecaster or a Stratocaster. He took he took one of his guitars, he was about to go on stage, and he just didn't have any strap. He just stuck it to his belly, and he took his hands off it, and it just stuck there. And he was, I just, I'll never forget that. That image is, like, burned in my mind of Von Till just standing there. And then he's like, man, it's fucking hot. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, watch this. He just stuck, stuck the guitar to him, and I was just snapping photos. Pretty funny. Um, I mean, knowing them as people, I know that they're not, they're all, they're all pretty funny guys, but they have like sure. a dark, dark sense of humor. Um, I just remember really good times hanging out with them guys. Like they treated us really, really nicely on that tour. And, uh, I still see, you know, I still see Jason, uh, Jason seems like the most normal, like down to earth, uh, like dad kind of guy. He loves talking about his kids and biking. I just remember on the tour we did, he, he had his own area of the bus where he just played video games all the time, and he brought his own bike with him, so he just bike around and play games. He kind of stayed out of everybody else's, stayed away from the parties and all that stuff. But um, had some really good conversations with him recently, just as as we did like a show with Neurosis at the, in Las Vegas a couple of years ago, and he was playing with Sleep. And, uh, you know, Noah, very, very close with Noah. He's a good dude. Um, I haven't talked to Scott in a long time. I'm trying to reach out to him. Until we see a bunch of times, he lives in Idaho, I believe. And he came up, he drove a few hours to come up to see us 
years ago, and he just told me and Braun how proud he was of us, and uh, made me feel really good, you know, coming from a guy like that that I really look up to, and uh, just such a epitome of fucking awesome. Yeah, it was just a really nice, nice nod, you know. He was he was very stoked, and uh, let's see, like you know, Dave Ed is always a blast to hang out with. He's like the epitome of like the walking punk rock. Encyclopedia, uh, been there, done that, kind of, and he's he's so down to earth. I mean, they all are, but what, when they come together, you know, and they've been a band for a very long time, and I've recently been watching some some early videos of them with when they had different members, but it was always Scott and Jason and Dave, and it was uh, man, it's just to see Scott so fucking young and how they were part of the whole punk rock scene in San Francisco and Oakland eighties and, and see how far they've come, you know, it's, uh, not never just still being who they are, you know, like true, true punkers. <laughs> I hope they put a new record out and I, I hope we can all go back to work someday and that we can yeah, go back to, back to touring together and, uh, blowing people's minds. You know, I just wish well for, on all those guys and, uh, love them. The first time we went to Italy with Neurosis, I think we were in Rome. And if you don't know, which you probably wouldn't unless you were in a band and you were over there, but in it, in Italy, the mafia bootlegs all of your merchandise, and they they have way more than you do, and they have it all outside the show for half the price. We were there. We were either in Milan or Rome. Did you know? We did a lot of. It was, it was pretty blurry from back then, but do you remember Scott yelling to everybody, these motherfuckers are selling our merchandise right outside the fucking front door. Let's fucking get them. <laughs> Him and, like, Steve and I think me and a couple of other guys, like, got up and, like, we were about to go out there and we thought we were going to go, like, half, you know, harass some Italian uh, kids outside who were selling bootleg merchandise and the promoter of the gig came running out no 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 you cannot do that stop this is the mafia they will kill you he was like he grabbed everybody and brought everyone back inside he said no no you don't worry about them we, we pay them they pay us and we it's it's just you can't don't go out there they'll kill you <laughs> and then as, as mastodon started touring over there i've noticed the same thing there's like lines and lines and lines of our merchandise everywhere and i and i i remember from being there the first time i'm like yeah we've done nothing you can do it's like the mafia controls it all and it's like you're fucked up if you uh so in the states that happens we send someone out and they confiscate all their shit a few times but this is uh this is a different world over in italy that was i and rehumanize we're still listening to through silver and blood mark it's true yeah, thank you. Uh, that was a extended little interview there from from Bill. Um, it was fun to talk to him. Bill um, How many times in life are you taking a shit and uh, you look at your phone and it says, uh, you know, Bill from Mastodon is calling you, and you have to start the interview and try and uh, get your composure together while you're. It was it was definitely Were you one evacuated of evacuated at first. Or it, was it was fairly evacuated, but it was also very. I, I was unprepared because um, I did not know he was going to call at that point. So it's always surprising getting a call on the can. But I, it is, uh, but when it's like usually if it's a call on the can, I'll like 
let it go to voicemail and then sure. you know but it's like oh shit it's bill for mastodon <laughs> like again that's a that's a once in a lifetime kind of moment there so on the toilet i mean you might be the first guy yeah i might be the first guy so I'm there sure, you go bill I'm sure he'll be thrilled bill when you're <laughs> i didn't i didn't mention it to him so so now we kind of reach, you know, we kind of get a little calm, uh, a palate cleanse almost after you have this epic 12-minute, you know, through Silver Tune. You get rehumanized an eye, and then we sort of resurface, and we start to head towards uh, kind of the, I don't want to say the peak, because there's so many peaks on this record, but the one-two punch of Purify and Locust Star, I think, is a pretty fucking powerful Um I got a lot of notes on Purify here because I, I figured most people know a lot about Locust Star, so you know we'll say some things about it. But it's great, yeah, it's a good song. Yeah, um, I wrote for what you're going to hear of Purify. Okay, again, if you're new for this record or if you're looking for to sort of kind of break it down a little bit, I think there's like a great quote, um, and I think it was in that Swans documentary. I wrote it down that Michael Jira quotes the the Dalai Lama, and I think it's a something I think a lot about with Through Silver. And he says, the Dalai Lama says that if death is staring you in the face at every second, you'd be in the correct state of consciousness. And I think like, yeah. to me, that's like the essence of this album, almost like, you know, like you're in a constant state of like sort of flux and purification and shedding yourself well, and with vulnerability. Yourself and, and, yeah. And, yeah. And like aware of, uh, aware of your surroundings and what's happening and appreciating it for what it is yeah. and not thinking about, oh, I got to, you know, pay the energy bill or this guy's pissed at me. It's like, like, yeah, basically it's at the, at the edge of uh, humanity. You know, and it, it reminds me too, like um, this kind of connects back to, I think something that, that Steve says at one point in one of these interview clips that, you know, they're always making the record they needed to make at the time they needed to make it sort of thing. Um, and it, it reminds me of something Dylan says in that Scorsese documentary where he says an artist, a true artist has to always be in a state of becoming. Mm -hmm. Never yeah. arriving, but becoming. And if you're always there, then you're always doing something that matters. Yeah. And I, th I think even not even in a way that's not quite as um, philosophical as that, like, the 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 role of of an artist or anybody pursuing a uh any type of thing like that you're never the whole point of it is not it's not the end points it's the journey it's mm -hmm. the continued the just like the show if you if somebody goes back and listens to the first 100 episodes <laughs> yeah. and then you start to listen like you, you understand that we're it's just it's compounding and it's getting bigger and it's we're yeah. appreciate we're trying to get the most we can out of this yeah um, yeah just uh, I don't I don't think you're ever you're you should never be satisfied because yep. if you are then what's the point yeah of doing it absolutely absolutely so I mean you could be satisfied with that but you need to like it, it's it's the journey going along yeah and trying to re you, you need to find a new challenge of some sort yeah you know what I mean and it's the problem with like you see it in my field where, where teachers get very complacent and it's easy to do that because once you do something every year, you kind of get pretty good at it and you kind of phone it in if you need it to. Um, I mean, the kids change, but the content doesn't. And if you want to yeah. keep doing the, the same old activities and never, you know, same old worksheets, like, but again, I, I find nothing about that appealing to me. It doesn't make me want to get up in the morning. So I want to constantly refine things as you do as an yeah. artist and yeah, yeah. whatever, you know. So 
Yeah, I think if you ever, if you're in a rut, nobody wants to be in a rut. Mm-hmm. Nobody, I mean, it's fine if like you're, if what you're doing is um, like you hit a certain level of skill where it's kind of easy to do, but as long as you enjoy it, but where it's like, there's, there, I think there's certain type of people where that's fine. Yeah. Um, and those, those are the type of people that, you know, that listen to the Eagles and uh, go to a sports game once a year and go to church on Easter like every, it's just all kind of passive. Yeah. Um, but for a certain type of personality, you need you need more. Yes. <laughs> and my my mom was a fifth grade teacher for uh, twenty three years, and she every year she was trying to do something different and mm-hmm. push it. And I was a little bit of a pain in the ass when I was younger. As far as uh, I needed certain types of the the normal. Uh, rigmarole of like here's what you need to do it didn't stick with me i need a different kind of teaching methods yeah so she always found a kid that she could kind of do figure out what they needed kind of until bureaucracy you know made her retire early because it was just became a shit show yeah (laughs) Yeah. and i can feel the walls kind of whoops closing in a little bit on that like i still have some freedom but it's definitely like there's a lot more bureaucratic bullshit that i'm doing now than than ever you yeah know? and it's it's kind of frustrating you kind of lose you can see where the passion can like dissipate if like if i was teaching classes i didn't enjoy which a lot of people get stuck teaching like oh yeah shit that they're like if i was teaching like six hours of econ it'd be tough it'd be tough for me to find the passion but like it, luckily i get to teach world history and film and rock and global stuff you know like i i really do and get a, a pretty awesome schedule well luckily but i created that you know yeah history you can you can use other things to discuss it yeah for sure it's not like economics you can't bring in like we're going to talk about the sunrise record and how it works the economics like that yeah. that's pretty pretty far out but yep. uh i mean i can use like the the history of like you know drug drug culture to talk about like you know supply and demand or you know like something like that yeah maybe that well, you're, hip you're, guy you're pulling that straw yeah you're... we were watching an episode of the wire and talking about how this you know <laughs> you know means of exchange work or whatever. yeah but i think when you get into a song um like purify here you know and um you know i wrote that the, the, these are just sort of thoughts. This is me kind of pontificating. So if, if you'll allow me and feel free to sort of jump in. But I said it's spectral. It's cosmic. It's got this foreboding, foreboding doom with this sort of swirling electronics. You got this sort of bass, the, the start to add guitar. You almost feel like I hear some violins. To me, like the whole opening of the song, it's like a existential doom from kind of this kind of, Cthulhu kind of cosmic existential sort of horror that's sort of floating around. I said, uh, the first time the doom riff breaks through, it's kind of startling. Like I, I find myself like, Oh, like, like, cause it doesn't happen, you know, for a while. Like there's just this kind of unfolding of stuff. And then all of a sudden it, it sort of hits you. And then, um, you know, the way they hold that note in that riff around like the three minute mark kind of makes the hair on the back of my neck like stand up. It's just yeah. this like, it's this moment that announces itself that you're listening to something that's important. And again, I, I we discuss it in the interview with like Aaron um, that will be coming up later is like whether or not like, you know, 
and I think for lack of a better term, when you and I a couple of weeks ago were talking about neurosis just on our own, we were kind of saying that they're like a, a band that earns the term pretentious. And he argued against that and he said, I don't think it's pretentious. I think it's just they're a band that's like completely intentional in some level. Like that's not pretentious. They're just yeah. actualizing like a goal. And we could say it's pretentious, but like they're just achieving something that's like loftier than than other people. But it's not because they're trying to impress you. It's just because that's what their goal is. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. Like it's a personal goal. It's not a let's sell more records or be uh, poster children for critics well, or something. Yeah. The like thing that. It, what would make it pretentious is if it wasn't if they didn't have the the earnestness of the convictions behind it. Yeah. And it was like. We want to make people feel something like that was never the intention. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in the interviews, like we're going to make people feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. uh, because they're coming to terms with shit. Sure. Um, I mean, I would make, but that's, it's a very, I think we mentioned the vulnerability thing to them yeah. where they didn't necessarily agree with that. But um, I, I see a lot of vulnerability in being that honest about your yeah. feelings too. Sure. Even if they're not specific, you know, they could have interpretation to them, but it's still putting it out there. I think this this opening three minutes of Purify, I said, um, I would argue that it has as much provocation and kind of terror-inducing newness to sort of the concept of, you know, neurosis is often referred to as like post-metal or what the fuck that means. But like, this is the Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath opening riff. This is the, the tritone. This is it. This is for that scene, for this, for the Macedon, for the Converges, for all these like sort of late nineties like breakthrough uh, sort of bands. riffs here, man. Well, they're part of this, right? They're part. Of, but I'm saying, yeah. like those, like when you hear the opening riff for the first time after that sort of atmospheric beginning of Black Sabbath, like you can almost literally hear the birth of like something beyond. Mm -hmm. Like it, it broke through to new territory, right? Like you hear that. You know, like, and yeah. it resonates into you. Like, hair stands up. You know, it's it's something special. And to me, the th yeah, the thunder, that's what the purify bell tolling, is. The, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the opening three minutes of purify are, are fucking incredible. And then, you know, then you get this. I say it's like a journey of, you know, the term purify. It's like purifying mind, body, spirit, soul, like all those things. And it's kind of showing you that this is going to be an arduous journey. But on the other end. We're going to fucking get through this. Yeah. It's going to be painful, though. Like, you're about to go on purification. You know, like, I, you think of, like, I talked about that with, like, ascetics, right? You know, like, starving yourself or meditating or going on a fast of some sort. You know, trying to achieve some, you know, purifying yourself. And it's it's painful. You know what I mean? Like, it can be flagellation. It can be blood, you know, whatever it is. And uh, it's kind of terrifying. And I love it. I, you know, maybe I'm thinking about this like on that level that's maybe beyond, but I think that's how you have to approach this record if you really want to kind of tap into its energy. Yeah. Um, you no, know, yeah, I think the the first half of the song sets up kind of as Locust Star does, mm -hmm. sets up a inkling of where the riff's going to go. Yeah. You know, holding out that note with the, the drums going, mm -hmm. and, ah! the yeah, screaming that, and shit. The way they hold And then when they finally come note. into the, da -na -na -na, like, actually kick into the whole riff. And that's something that um, neurosis has this like tantric quality mm -hmm. that doesn't often pay off. Um, 
that's why Locust Star is probably the most like hit satisfying immediate song because it has that tantric quality, but actually instead of just ending, which a lot of them do where it's kind of leaves you like, Oh shit, where am I at now? Yeah. This actually kind of goes through. Yeah. Or, Actually, purify and it, yeah, almost like leads you up to where yep. Locust Star is going to go. Yeah, um, it's and cool. then we get some bagpipes. It's, yeah, yeah, we'll get there too <laughs> by by about the the you know the eight minute mark or whatever. But but sort of before that, um, there's this cool riff that sort of comes in where like you hear a little bit of southern twang, like a little bit around the three thirty mark, and and I mean I think it, it's because they slide into the. Riff. It, I think that must be what yeah. it is, and what I get out of that is I hear like like Royal Thunder type riffs in here too, yeah. which Mastodon too, like sure. those, you know, Mastodon's got that Georgia thing mixed yeah. in with the sludge and, you know, all those kind of things. So I gotta say, I really don't like the sludge term. I don't understand. I've never it's a understood weird term. it. Yeah. I'm just using it for the sake of sure. that's like what it is, but that was just, just in my like yeah, research. Like when you talk about the Melvins and yeah, I was like, what? Bands. Yeah. Nobody explains what the fuck that means. And it just sludge is like a, it's a derogatory it's like the shit in the bottom of a fucking. It's not. There's nothing yeah. like good about it. I mean, Nor I guess it could it, be like the 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 mud that like pulls you down. The or you know this sort of like. Well, sludge is like what's in the bottom yeah, of, a, no, of, just, of an I'm, engine or I'm something. I'm trying to know? turd polish a little. Yeah, literally. it's just a, it's a weird. Yeah. I mean, it's a stupid thing. Journalists it's like Stoner Rock too. It's True. kind of a you know it's stupid and kind of limiting. But I know? didn't hear that about um, about neurosis or or Mastodon or any of these bands until like you know. 2005 ish on kind of became it's just, a, it's just a, a weird term yeah. yeah it's just a weird it doesn't it doesn't gel with me but that shouldn't get us off track yeah. <laughs> i said about halfway through the song here about the five minute mark or whatever or i'm a little less than halfway i wrote after a five minute intro it's an intro yeah okay i said it's time to get shit going and take us into a phantasmagoric circus of doom with the ritualistic riffery and terrifying intensity of scott's vocals yeah, it gets. I just said I want him to exercise those haunting nightmares he's trying to purify. Like I feel bad for the guy. Like it's, it's like three minutes of just like, fuck, like fuck. You know, um, I said by eight minutes in, I'm in a cyclone of inner turmoil before the industrial steam engine whistle dissonance pattern begins as the tribal drumming tempo increases in intensity. Atonal bagpipes pierce the veil, creating here it is. The whirling dervish Sufi purification as if I were an ascetic. This ending draws from the swans, this sort of ambient experimental well. Was, yeah, and what's what, I was sitting at the coffee shop getting fucking deep, dude. Fucking what no one's doing with that, 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 whatever that sample is, that <sighs> thing that has like bell, like I don't know what, how many different things are layered. So I said, into I said, that it's thing. like a steam engine whistle. It's just like yeah. weird. I don't know what it but is. But there's like a certain kind of like, it's like a, like a, a bell tolling mm. kind of like finality to it, yeah. As well, like a funeral march or like a like a fucking Irish wake, yeah. It's happening, yeah. you know, a gallows kind of yeah. thing or something like that. Yeah, it's droning. It's definitely a droning quality, you know. Um, and then you know, I guess the angle I took with Locust Star is I tried to think about like the lyrics a little bit. Um, and, and kind of what I got was a, kind of a song about someone who's been kind of misled by his or her beliefs, which have kind of become, they came from a good place, but they've become sort of extreme or cultish a bit. 
you know, he's, he, there's a line in it that says, Christ shine blinds your world. Your belief is scars. Yeah. Um, again, I, I'm not saying it's like interpreting Bob Dylan. Like, I don't fucking know. Like, that's just, it's a thought I sort of had that they're, they're, ex- they're not anti-religious. You know, I think there's something incredibly spiritual and, and they've spoken to that. Yeah. But I think they're leery of maybe the organization of religion or what can happen when religion becomes extreme or becomes cultish or becomes, you know, um, you know, any of the fundamentalism, you know, like on that sort of level. And this is kind of like what is one yeah, like theme when your personal agency is not involved anymore. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think I think that's kind of you know sort of interesting um, because I think so many people just talk about Locust Star as like oh it's fucking awesome and it is it's it's great you know um, you get this kind of shambolic kind of bass drum. I call it the what would you call it? I call it the pterodactyl scream. This <laughs> it's like this this like monster like like my kids do that in school to be annoying. They do like yeah. the pterodactyl scream. It's like, it's something I hear kind of like, it's like buried, but it's like, it's like almost, it's like something you'd hear in like uh, on Dagobah or something like that. You know, like, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's pretty interesting. Um, And I just said, you know, before that cathartic scream comes in at like the 132 mark, I mean, is there a more famous neurosis moment than that? That's like the definition of neurosis is like the quiet ambient kind of opening and then you know ah, you know and yeah then the, that sort of catchy riff kind of starting to come in and let me try not to make a ton of uh scott kelly's scream is the best most honest noise to ever come from a human yeah I mean, that's, <laughs> that's a little hyperbolic but i was uh it was just i was trying to i was like listening to this kind of in the dark yeah and just his I can't. I. I don't think of. I can't think of anybody else that has that kind of like emotional quality to their voice that he does. Um, I mean, there's there's testament to that with the you know the six or seven Mastodon songs that you know yeah. every album he comes on yeah, to yeah. do one, um, and there, he just has a certain quality to his voice that I don't think anybody, no other screamer has. Yeah. <laughs> to their voice. Yeah, no. That just it feel if there's there's no pretension or anything. it just feels so like I understand what you're saying. Even yep. I can't understand the lyrics, but I I feel it. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think just the voices in general, not just Scott's, but I think you the three voices in this song, I said they intertwine like a sinister Beach Boys pet sounds. Yeah, toward the end is just it's it's fuck it's fantastic. Um that's I th- it's I think in some aspects it's like their quintessential Song. Yeah, this is the hit song. It's, it's but the it, song. It, I can't think of another one that really. It kind of has all their kind of like trademarks. Yep. In it, and they've done it maybe better in other songs, but I think this might be the like the first that really like shit. These guys are kind of a force. Yeah, this is kind of like if you're gonna play somebody a song, you kind of maybe play them. You know, this and this and maybe a couple others would be like good. Like, if you like this, you probably like Neurosis. Yeah. You know? I, Playing Locust Star and Stones from the Sky. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah, a handful of others. Yeah, but yeah. Like yeah, those are it's the, kind of an immediate kind of get where they're coming yeah. from. Um, I said I really dig the. There's a cool stutter step time signature pattern that the bass and drums sort of create. It kind of reminds me of like later days sort of Fugazi um, in terms of like it. It's it's it stutters a little bit. It doesn't like allow you to kind of 
have like a clear four. It's progressive without being progressive, almost. You know, yeah. it's like playing with with some of that. Um, I said the wall of feedback that claws in at times is like this, like perfect. And I said Dave's kaleidoscopic bass kind of lumbers along. You know, especially as like "Star Rain Down on You" becomes the sort of unifying meditative sing-along chant. I mean, who would think that that's like a catchy chorus? You know, but it yeah. the way you know, I think it's Scott that's doing it, right? That's screaming the or is that Steve? The the "Star Rain Down on You" "Star Rain Down." It, it's said over and over throughout the song. Uh, I think it's Steve. Yeah, I think it is Steve. Yeah, because um, Steve they they kind of they have similar voices at times, but. But Scott has that slightly more, like, slightly high, higher A little register. bit higher. Yep, yep. Um, I said the gear shift that happens at 430, you could argue elevated this guy to the next level. Like, in some level, it's the it's that finishing salvo of this song that I think... I said, this was the part, and this refers back to something that um, they said in the interview, this is the part for the guys in the back who turn and look at each other during that part and kind of are tapping along a little bit going, okay. Yeah. Like, you know, like the, you know, what I'm referring to is the part in the interview where they're, they're, they're talking about how they, they're when they would open for Pantera and, and play at Ozfest, there's always like a couple of weirdos that like, don't know the neurosis fans who like get them, you know? Yeah. And I think this is the song that, that doesn't, it's that last like salvo that really kind of sells them home. So, yeah, I think that's one of that's I don't I can't think of another song where they do the the vocal interplay quite so dynamically. Mm-hmm. Um and I was just I was I wrote half a page about basically just that yeah. that interplay. Maybe for me falling unknown, the like the the end of that song, that's the only yeah. other time where I get this like where like all the voices are just like fucking coming together in a cool way, but but again, it, that's a different type of song too. So yeah. it's hard to, just, hard yeah, to with, compare. Just with yeah, like Dave's this is like immediate, you know, thing coming in too, and yeah, then everybody's just kind of, you know, playing yeah, off one another. It's just it's like it's, says like evil Beach Boys, like harmonies, like the, yeah. all their voices are working together, you know, and yeah, um, even, like even live, it's more yeah, you know, more impressive. But. It's intense. So so let's get into it. This is a the hell of a pair of tunes here. So if you don't know if you like Neurosis yet, you'll you'll, you'll <laughs> this is it for you. Uh, but first, we're going to hear a little bit about kind of the, the legacy of the record in the eyes of Neurosis, uh, a little bit on the production. And then when we come out of these pair of songs, uh, we hear a little bit about Billy Anderson's production a bit and uh, and a special message from Eugene Robinson from Oxbow. Oh, cool. Legacy-wise, like when you listen to that record today or you think about that or you hear people talk about it 25 years later, where do you see it? both as a band and within the realm of kind of heavy music like what how do you think about that record today i i i can't i can't entertain the third party view of where it fits in the history of music because that's like there's a weird danger of ego inflation yeah, there which sure. is com- yep, completely yep. completely inappropriate to yep. the spirit of the music you know i mean yep um and uh but i mean now in hindsight i mean i know some people put it on a pedestal and no and i were discussing together earlier when we were talking we've never been a band to look backwards only to look forward and so it was the necessary rung of the ladder of our evolution that needed to happen between enemy of the sun and times of grace 
And it was exactly what we needed to go through at that time. But that was the best that we could have been between the years of 1995 and, you know, 1998. Uh, Since then, we've become the more evolved version of ourselves multiple times over, you know, and I, I still feel our peak is our latest record and our best expression of who we are and, and what we are capable of is fires within fires, because that's our latest uh, express self-expression. But that being said, without every one of those steps along the way, even before I was involved or before Noah was involved, all of those things needed to happen to allow us to get where we would end up. Well, and you're not 27 anymore. You know what I mean? Like you, you were a certain person when you made that record and you're, you've got a family now and you know what I mean? Like you have just different perspectives Um, for sure. I just didn't know, like completely respect and understand that philosophy of, of just kind of constantly looking forward a little bit. But I guess as this is a celebration of the 25th anniversary, I'd be remiss (laughs) if I didn't ask you that question, at least, you know, absolutely. Or yeah. When, and if if we didn't feel proud of it, we wouldn't be talking. So we're extremely proud of it. Is there a, I mean, you guys still perform Locust Star fairly regularly, but is there like a song that as you've kind of grown that's still like, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure you're connected to all the songs, but is there a song that you looked very fondly back as being like a breakthrough type of song or just a song that you kind of have a 25 years later, a special connection? They're they're all pretty. I mean, that's the thing. It's all your children. (laughs) They're all special, but we weren't like writing other songs and then we picked the best to put it on that record. Mm-hmm. That's everything we wrote at that time was on that record. That's kind of how it was. Yeah, we there's no B-sides we, or something. No, like we that, didn't yeah. spend time on things that were kind of cool, but not quite good enough. You know, like none of that took our time at all. So like I said, every single one of those was really poured over you know? Mm-hmm. And so they're all kind of. And it really works as a connective piece too. It's not a bunch of separate songs. It's got yeah. like a pet sounds kind of feel to it or something, you know? I think the, the two that were kind of particularly ambitious and felt like grand achievements would be, um, purify and Aeon. Um, in terms of like long format, very sort of almost orchestrated uh, with different movements, you know, uh, I think that was um, something I was proud of uh, and still am. I remember Locust Star was the first song we wrote with me. So that's always going to oh, be wow. special. The hit song, right? <laughs> yeah, see? The one, the one single. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> see what happens when I join? Yep. Yeah. Radio, radio, sort of money radio fandom. <laughs> you should join again. <laughs> was there ever, uh, was the sequence of the songs, was that always, like, as you were, as we were writing and putting stuff together, was that very evident? Or was it, was there a, a point where you're kind of moving things around to, to make it kind of feel feel right Mm, i don't really remember but i think that we probably figured that out in advance as well like 
like I said, the whole thing was very crafted and we really, really thought through everything, especially and including guitar tones. Uh, but I do remember that we made a, a choice to, and I'm not sure if it was the wisest way to do this because it was the early days of digital technology, but we made a choice to um, connect the tails and the heads of every song so there was no silence. And so that's well, some of the tapes that I made filled that role as a little bridge, a segue between the end of the song and the cue the start of the next one to begin, you know? But even um, even when it went song to song, if you listen closely, there's an overlap there. And the only way to really do that, well, the only way we knew how to do that um, was to put the mixes into something like Pro Tools and do a crossfade and then output the whole album as, as one giant long song. Okay. Um, now that we know Steve Albini, we know that there are other ways to do that where you don't have to put the whole thing into a digital realm, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But we didn't know that then. Yeah. But, In fact, we didn't know, like, and we were just, again, like Noah and I were having some discussions re recently, just kind of uh, painfully remembering that in the nineties, um, every single responsible professional engineer that we worked with until Steve Albini, we were recording on beautiful two inch 24 track tape. Sometimes we had a slave uh, ADAT to it, which was not ideal, but we talked ourselves into it. But man, we mixed all those fucking records to DAT digital audio tapes. And what a mistake. I mean, what a nightmare. You've got all these beautiful you know, nice, rich analog tones, and you're mixing it down to 16-bit fucking digital garbage through the converters at the time, which were not what they are now. You know, now you can get a really nice sounding conversion from analog to digital. But back then, it was really uh, primitive, but it was mm -hmm. the state-of-the-art thing, and everybody was into it. And yeah. shiny. And, uh, you know, so we can't actually do a proper most likely remaster ever because those uh, digital audio tapes don't have any legs, you know, they don't last. That's probably why I think the you guys operate almost, I don't want to say better, but seeing you live has a just, it's like a rite of passage or something like that, because it almost goes beyond what can be just captured in an album. Even though I think Albini like you said, has done a better job of capturing some of that more organic nature. It there is something about the visceral live experience of neurosis, you know, and it's probably because you, like you said, the you were trapped in sixteen bits, you know, still, you know. Mm -hmm.
through silver. Um, you know, you talked about the crafting of it and the layering and stuff like that. What what role did somebody like Billy play in kind of holding all that together? Or was it mostly just you guys and he was just capturing everything organically the way you you wanted to construct it? I think we've always had the engineer basically as an engineer's position. You know, we had like the songs were written. They, they were exactly the way we were going to be. But we we were still I mean, except for Noah, who had a little more training, but we were still only had a few records under our belt, you know, and didn't have a lot of experience. Um, and so we wanted to have someone we could trust and who is also one of us, not an outsider mm. uh, to deliver this thing. And uh, so he helped us try to get it recorded in the way that we were discussing at the time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, think about the first, you know, the records before then were definitely um, were recorded by people who weren't part of the punk world that we came from or the weird fucked up artist mentality. You know, these were people who worked in recording studios who were kind of like, able to do it as a technician, you know, but maybe missed some opportunities to do it a certain way that would have uh, benefited the vibe of the music more, you know? Yeah. Uh, so, so uh, I think Billy's role there was to, was to be the operator of the controls, but also have this sensibility that's much uh, deeper and is pretty important you know, in retrospect and now with all these records made, like that's, that's very, that's a key uh, element to capturing, to, to getting an end result that, that is in line with what your vision is. Well, especially I feel like this album in particular is you've mentioned and joked at how dark and angry it is, but it's pretty vulnerable, right? I mean, this is an album that's still, I think, I think years ago it was kind of tough for you guys to maybe articulate it, right? Or am I kind of reading into that? I don't know. Yeah. I just didn't know if maybe having somebody trust it like Billy there when you're kind of so much catharsis is kind of coming out in your performance and in the recording, it 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 like you said, it it allowed you to capture something that, that just a professional engineer who wasn't close with the band might not have been able to capture. Yeah. Okay. Now that you asked it that way. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there was, there was no like uh holding back any of the flying of the freak flag. I mean, mm. we were all, <laughs> we were all there together in the, you know, in the relatively the same age in the same scene, the same fans of the same music. And, and it was, so it was just like, uh, you know, kind of an extension of like another one of us was there in the technical role. That was that was key because what we were we were definitely um, two things. One, we were wanting to do all of it ourselves. Ultimately, we were we weren't, and and that that is sort of like comes from a sort of a DIY like this is our art expression place, you know, that we grew up in the, a scene that kind of celebrated that. But the other reason is that we. We didn't want to let people in and we wanted to protect what we had because we knew that there was 
something really pure about it. And we would talk about it with each other. And we kind of cherished that. And it was really difficult for us to let other people in um, to any kind of decision-making role into what we were doing. We kind of just didn't, you know, when it came to like booking our shows and putting out our records and, you know, it was, all of that was, um, it was hard for us. And um, it was kind of a scary thing for us to do. And we often just chose not to.